0: Welcome to episode 29 of Sticky Beak. In this episode, we chat with Raphael Bender from Breathe Education. After a highly varied early career that saw Raphael doing everything from teaching martial arts to fixing friends' cars, Raphael discovered an intense passion for Pilates and sharing that passion with others through education. It was great fun hearing about Raphael's journey, and he shared a ton of great insights from both a personal and business development perspective. While this episode will be of interest to anyone who enjoys learning about the mechanics of business, it'll be of particular interest to those interested in health and wellness or education-related businesses. Radio, Thanks for joining Sticky Beak, Raphael. Oh,
1: it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: Yeah, no no problem at all. And you're joining us from View Bank in Melbourne today?
1: Yes, I am. Straight so the Rome.
0: For those who don't see the video footage, uh, Raphael's got the bookcase and the skeleton behind him just over the shoulder, which we expect for your line of work.
1: Yeah. Um, I think uh, over the last 12 months with COVID, we've all become much more conscious of what people see in the background when we're on Zoom.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, with the Pilates background, uh, I think it, it fits in nicely. And is that a guitar I can see there as well?
1: It is. It's a uh, 74 Fender Jazz Bass, uh, three-color sunburst. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Have you been playing that for a while? Uh,
1: In my late teens up until my late 20s, it was my life's passion and my main source of, in quotes, income. Um, And uh, so I've probably spent twenty or 30,000 hours playing that instrument. But um and so you think I'd be pretty good by now. Um and I'm I'm pretty good at some things, but pretty sucky at others. But um I really kind of put it down in my late 20s. I realized I came to a kind of a decision point where I realized, oh crap, I've been doing this for a decade now and I'm still playing in two bit sleazy dives for 50 bucks a night, you know um, maybe I'm not going to make it because <laughs> yeah, when you, when you, when you're 19 or 20 or whatever, you just think, Oh, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be famous. And um, then you get some lightweight fame and whatever. And you think, Oh yeah, I'm on my way. But then you realize, no, that's just called like being a pub band. And, um, <laughs> uh, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I still have friends who I was, you know, from my musician days that are still musicians. Um, and, one or two of them have made it kind of sort of into the lower echelons um like they've been on the voice or they've whatever but but based, and you know one and one of, one of them has actually made it super big um but most of them that are still playing are playing in cover bands or doing weddings parties anything or whatever and i'm so glad i i got out of it
0: yeah so you don't do any more gigs
1: no no i pick up i i have the bass here i love to pick it up and just noodle on it play some scales muck around whatever it kind of calms me um it's kind of a moving meditation um but i i don't really like practice as such and i i haven't played a note in anger in you know a decade probably like with you know jammed with other people or done a gig or whatever so I, i'd be rusty as hell if i if i tried. <laughs> Yeah,
0: gotcha. We interviewed um, Andrew Ward from South Wealth a while ago. I don't know if you've heard of South Wealth before. It's a pretty successful investing platform. He's quite a muso himself. Um, he grew up in Sydney, I think it was, and he had a pretty cool story around his musical background. Um, he got invited to join another band that was doing the rounds and doing quite well, who eventually became the Wiggles, and he passed up the opportunity, so he could have been a Wiggle that uh, ended up founding his own uh, investing platform. So you never know where it's going to go.
1: Yeah, that's, the, I mean, that uh, that seems like one of the ones that got away. And I, I remember reading, like, probably a decade ago now that the Wiggles were, like, one of, if not the biggest grossing Australian bands of all time, like, right up there with ACDC, you know, like, they are just making ridiculous amounts of commercial success for themselves. So um, yeah. good on
0: yeah absolutely yeah i've got a a two-year-old and i'm quickly finding out how prolific the wiggles (laughs) so did you grow up in melbourne raphael
1: uh yeah i grew up in melbourne uh just a totally nondescript suburban upbringing in blackburn which is just one of the totally missable suburbs on the way from somewhere to somewhere else um uh, completely unremarkable in all ways um and I've, I've lived in sydney moved to sydney when i was about 19 in a fit of peak over a over a girl um and uh camped out in sydney for you know a decade on and off so i've, I've done a bit of living around the northern beaches and the inner city glee uh, bondi bronte in sydney there and you know i've got a real soft spot for sydney always but i'm back in melbourne now and um and think here to stay
0: Yeah. Nice one. Nice one. And what did your education look like, Raphael? Did you finish school? Did you do uni? What was the process there for you?
1: Um, It looked very interrupted. Um, So when I was in school, I was always, uh, I guess what they call precocious. Like I was kind of ahead of where I should have been in school and I was doing like year 10 maths in year eight and stuff like that. Um, but I was also like super lazy and conceited and basically I, it was a point of pride for me to do as little work as possible and, and still get good marks. Um, and so like in my, I did my HSC, which was like the year 12 exam when I did, did it. Um, I actually didn't read any of the required texts in the year. Um, and I still got like 58% and I was like crowing about that. I was so, you know. Proud of that, whereas now I look back, you know, with a shudder of shame. But, mm. like, like, how could, how good could I have been if I'd actually done the work? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, uh, so I, but I, I went to, I, I started uni, um, straight out of school, but, uh, f- for a couple of reasons, I didn't continue. Um, I, I had a pretty bad, I was a passenger in a pretty bad motor vehicle accident. When I was 19 and that kind of put me out for a year and then I went back and I just, my heart wasn't in it. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I was picked just random subjects like ancient Hellenistic Greek and philosophy and freaking mathematics. And and it's like, okay, interesting, but what the hell are you going to do, you know, with, with that? And, uh, and, and, and I also just didn't understand, I didn't have any of the skills or discipline necessary to succeed in tertiary education and so I flunked out my first year uh, and just spent the next couple of decades doing other non-academic things and I went back to uni at 41 or something uh, and did a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science by correspondence at Charles Darwin Uni and then I went to Charles Sturt Uni after that and did a Master of Clinical Exercise Physiology in Rehabilitation.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Do you remember any of the content from ancient Hellenic philosophy?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Um, and so what I got from my first uh, attempt at tertiary education is uh, an appreciation of Homer, uh, which I haven't read in the original because my Greek never was anywhere near good enough for that, but I've read the English translation. Um, and uh, a couple of words like gubernator in ancient Hellenistic Greek is the 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 captain of the ship of state. You know, so the, the governor is the captain of the ship of state. And so um, that's that always always struck with me, and I'm not sure if it means anything, but um, that's something I got from my first go at uni.
0: Gotcha. I think you remember more from uni than I do, to be honest, and it sounds like I spent triple the amount of time there you did. So, well, that's something, I guess. Did you have any part-time jobs or side businesses that you started while you were growing up or going through your education?
1: Um, I, I started out in hospitality when I left high school. I did, uh, back in those days, you could do a, a trade apprenticeship as a fine dining waiter. This was in the late 80s, early 90s in Melbourne. Um, and uh, so fine dining was a real in its kind of heyday, I think there, there was like nouveau cuisine and this huge big plate with a tiny little, you know, <laughs> dish in the middle of it. Um, and, you know, so we learned all about the Loire river versus the freaking Burgundy wine or whatever. So we learned all of that stuff and cooking steak, Diane at the table and, you know, all of that. And that was, you know, that was fun. And I, I think I learned a lot there about hard work and about attention to detail and about hospitality and, uh, service. Um, and that's really, I think that's all been pivotal in later life for me. Um, uh, and so I spent probably a decade in hospitality. Um, and that was a great, you know, that was a great fun time in my life. Um, and then I I, I spent, uh, you know, probably five or eight years as a, again, in quotes, professional musician. Um, and I, in that time, I had a again, in quotes, recording studio business, um, which was really just a eight track and a few microphones <laughs> that I used to lug around to people's houses. Um, but, you know, that's kind of how I made my living for, for quite a number of years. But I wouldn't say I had a really an entrepreneurial understanding or, you know, like I, I really was just a technician who had a, a job that I'd created for myself. Um, I spent time as a bouncer, um, I've, I've, I've worked as a, an unlicensed car mechanic. Um, i work worked in motor wreckers. <laughs> an unlicensed car mechanic. <laughs> yeah. what, what kind of work were you doing there? Oh, uh, you know, just, you know, servicing people's cars, replacing the motor, yeah. um, you know, fixing the brakes, whatever on people's cars, you know, just in the backyard, literally in the backyard or sometimes by the side of the road. Um, you know, because when you're 30 and a musician and don't have a cent to your name and all your friends are musicians that don't have a cent to their name they can't afford a real mechanic so mm-hmm. they're happy to pay you <laughs> a bit less
0: yeah yeah um
1: yeah so i i and i've also run a martial arts studio uh my own martial arts studio for a number of years uh and again like yeah so i guess i've, I've been in a bunch of businesses but I, I don't really think there were any of them were really worthy of the name business they were more just like a job
0: yeah yeah gotcha uh i think that's a pretty common theme for people who uh run a few things and before they get to their thing that's actually quite successful uh when they look back they tend to be a bit ashamed of not ashamed but uh you know not that proud of the stuff that they created in the past even though they might have been at the time if you spoke to them then you mentioned the martial arts studio which martial art were you teaching there
1: um, so this was uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, I, I opened a Kung Fu uh, school and this was in uh, Newtown Gym in King Street, Newtown in Sydney. And yes, I was Southern praying Mantis Kung Fu, which is a Southern short-fisted style of Kung Fu, kind of like Kung Fu meets Tai Chi. Um, um, and, you know, so that was, you know, that was, that was very formative for period for me and i met a lot of people uh who had a big influence on me subsequently but um it wasn't really any kind of business as such you know i mean it was like barely scratching a living
0: yeah yeah I um I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I'm familiar with, you know, the whole martial art club set up. And, yeah, a lot of them are very much lifestyle businesses for the instructors. They're, I mean, they can make decent money, obviously, but especially if they grow to have multiple clubs. But, yeah, there's definitely a lot of lifestyle stuff out there as well.
1: For me, it was just, it was that, it was like, Hey, I like training all day. And now I can get in quotes paid for it, which is like, okay, it's better than me going and paying someone else to do it. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm hearing is that you've done a lot of different things, Raphael, and obviously you have a a willingness to wing things to some extent and learn new things. Um, So how did that all come together into developing the passion for Pilates that you obviously have and also putting breathe together?
1: Um, Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's really easy to kind of overlay a story and narrative in hindsight, Uh, you know, prospectively, as I was living through it, there was no plan, there was no trajectory. It was just, you know, I was a 25 year old idiot living one day to the next and without a thought for the future. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but, you know, retrospectively, I think you know, I've been really good at focusing super intensely on learning something for a, a year or two or three or four or five until I feel like I've got it. You know, like I, I did martial arts super intensively for five years, and after that, I was like, huh, I'm not. I'm not a, not going to be a world champion anytime soon." But I, I feel like I get this. You know, uh, and same with with music. Like I would, I would never, you know, you'll never see me on on the concert stage, but I'd, you know, I consider myself a pretty proficient you know, musician within the realms that I'd, I've worked in. And the same in the car mechanics thing, you know, like I'm not as good as a professional mechanic, but I, I, th- I learned a lot about car me- uh, about problem solving, you know, because what I love about cars is they there is a solution because they ultimately they're logical and they're put together. And if, if it's not working, it's either there's no fuel, there's no spark or there's no air, right? It's like, if you got all those three things, the car's going to run. Right. So it's just a matter of like, okay, what's what's missing from this puzzle here? And so that really taught me, you know, sort of a methodical, you know, process-based approach to problem solving and 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 to have the attitude that there is a solution. If I don't know what the solution is, it's just because I haven't looked in the right place yet. You know. And so I think I learned, you know, from music, I learned creativity. I learned to just, you know, make stuff up and be cool if it doesn't come out great first time um, and to iterate and to be okay with winging stuff, like you said. Um, from the martial arts, I learned, you know, discipline. I learned the value of hard work. I learned uh, to be fearless, you know, because I think that's something you face, especially in a martial art where you do sparring is like everyone has this as a fear, you know, it's that's normal and natural. Um, and that, you know, when you overcome that, when you face it and overcome it, it it's really empowering. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I, still to this day would prefer not to get punched in the nose than to get punched in the nose, but it's not something that holds fear for me, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I feel like in retrospect, if I try and sort of, you know, write my autobiography, <laughs> I've kind of <laughs> learned you know, I've spent you know each phase of my life. I've kind of spent learning. And in hospitality, like I said, I learned you know service and uh, attention to detail and how to hustle and and uh, and so you know, I feel like I've learned. You know, each of those has been like a one aspect of a set of skills, a skill set that is required. You know, has enabled me to succeed. You know, in my present endeavor and the origin of the Pilates thing is twofold like when i was teaching kung fu in sydney um i just had a lot of students who were who had back pain and i just started to notice it like okay my students are young and old male and female fat or thin smart and dumb like but one thing they all had in common is they all had sore backs (laughs) um and so i just and, and i just got more and more interested in actually the physical conditioning side of things you know like strengthening people and increasing mobility and stuff rather than the actual fighting side and so i just found i was naturally kind of drawn to that and then the second thing is i realized and this this must have been when i was in my early 30s it's like i've been like in business you know for the last 10 years but i'm basically like if i was on unemployment benefit i'd probably be making more money and I, I, I just acknowledge that I just don't know how to make or keep money. You know, I'm not financially literate, you know, and I, not just, I can't read a spreadsheet. It's like, I can't actually spend less than I earn. I don't know how to do that. And so I made a, I remember exactly where I was standing. I was with my wife, we were on a uh, Street in Glebe. And we, we, you know, we had this conversation and I said, yeah, I, I want to learn how to, Be a master of money you know i want to understand i don't want to be stressed about money anymore i want to i want to understand how money works and um it's taken more than a decade but i feel like i've kind of got there
0: that's an interesting one and a lot of people definitely have that problem and i feel like it's more for guys than girls sometimes as well um i don't know if it's just the nature of the way they grow up or whatever it is but What did you do to fix that? You said it was sort of a 10-year period to, you know, bridge the gap. But if you were going to give advice to someone else who feels like they're really not in control of their financial situation, what steps would you take to fix that?
1: Uh, Well, I think, you know, I mean, the basic formula, like I said, is you've got to spend less than you earn right? But you can do that by either spending less or earning more or some combination. Uh, And what I've learned is it's infinitely easier to earn more than it is to spend less. And if there's one thing I've learned in business, I mean, I've learned a lot, but I think this is one of the pivotal things is that more sales solves just about all problems. Um, And so you know, because if you, if you have a business, or even if you just have your personal finances or whatever, and you've got you know ten thousand dollars of expenses and ten thousand dollars of income, right? Well, if you economise and buy home brand toilet paper and eat cat food off a cardboard plate, right? Well, you might get your expenses down from ten thousand to five thousand, mm. right? But your life is going to be hell, right? Whereas you can double your income like clicking your fingers, right? Easy. Mm. So why not do that? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, totally agree. It's Maybe we're making it sound too simple and it's easier when you have your own business than when you're in a, you know, salaried job, obviously. But I think it's a really valid point. And there's so many uh, personal finance gurus out there that, you know, have all these strategies for cutting a bit of expenditure here and there. So you save an extra thousand a month or whatever it is. But you can really put yourself in a negative mindset when you just focus on saving, because the amount of saving you can do is finite, whereas the amount of income you can generate is infinite. And it's, you know, the amount or the scalability of it might vary for different people based on their skill set and all that sort of thing. But like you said, It's a lot more fun to to make more money than to just focus on saving it's kind of like dieting right like it's it's more fun to exercise and get a healthy lifestyle than to just count calories and cut back on all the things you enjoy so i think that's a a great point there and at what stage did you really get full on with the Pilates, Raphael? So you mentioned it sort of started with the the Kung Fu um, academy. You started focusing on it more there. Was there a point where you just switched to hundred percent Pilates, or was it always a little bit of a blend?
1: There was a, there was a point. Um, so uh, the first thing I did when I when after I decided, after I realised that that was the next thing I wanted to learn is is money. Um, like I want to learn how to make it. I want to learn how to keep it um, and how to manage it. And, and so I went and got a job and, uh, the place that I got a job was at this place called Elixir Health Club, which was in the center of Sydney CBD. It was in Park Street. It's, they've still got a couple of venues, but that one's no longer there. Um, and I got a job with the, I I got friendly with the, one of the owners there, Steve and, Uh, they were a mind body health club they did yoga and pilates and also they had a full gym set up you know weights and cardio and whatever and so that was pretty close to kind of my kind of dream of having a kung fu plus yoga and pilates center so i was like oh i'm going to learn off these guys you know and so i told you know i was up front and said you know here's my vision is to open this place and steve was like well come work for us and i said doing what and he's like i don't know we'll find you something and so he taught me sales he put me at the bottom of the sales team I was the gopher and um used to sit and listen to everyone's calls and fill out the paperwork and whatever and then I became a salesperson he trained me up and this he he was a sales genius I mean he, you could have a conversation with Steve and the room would vibrate you know like you were like <laughs> I would buy anything off you <laughs> just to hear you keep talking um and and you know I I learned a lot from him about sales I learned a lot from him about leadership um I became the leader of the sales team. Uh, and then, uh, I, yeah, so I, I learned a lot there. And so I was the leader of the sales team for a while. I was the lead. I was the manager of this, of the, the club. I was, um, led, led the sales team and we opened a couple of, uh, their next two venues. We did a pre-sales, um, uh, and in the interim, like, uh, I, you know, one of my dear friends who worked there, um, ran the Pilates instructor training program, and we used to just have coffee in the park across the road every morning, talk about whatever. And uh, this one particular morning, she said, Oh, look, you know, I've got this instructor course running this weekend and someone's pulled out at the last minute. I haven't got my minimum numbers, you know, please, 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 please. Will you come and be a warm body in the room? So I don't look bad in front of the owners. And I was like, Oh, freaking eye roll. Do I have to? And she was like, on, oh, I'll be your best friend. I was like, oh, "All right, You know, you owe me. Um, and so, so I, you know, rolling my eyes and dragging my heels and moaning audibly, I, I I arrived at this Pilates course and was just floored by how how exciting it was to learn about the body and anatomy and and all, you know, it was just really, really was uh, one of those sort of things that sort of instantly clicked for me. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. What, you know, what else can I learn about this? So yeah, it all started then.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. I just want to go back to the stuff you mentioned about sales. I don't know about you, but I think that the ability to sell is one of the most underrated skills that you can have uh, in, not just as an entrepreneur, but in general business, or even as an employee, like going through that process of negotiating, whether you're doing cold calls, meeting people face to face, you just learn so much from it. And it. I think it kills so many fears as well, because um, so many people just can't, communicate effectively or even, you know, negotiate to get things that they want. And sales teaches you all of that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I would even go further and say that sales is the foundational skill of business and whatever business you're in, you're in the business of selling something to someone. And if you can't sell, well, you got no business, you know, and, and as the founder, you know, once you get a bit, you grow a bit or you don't have to be the one person on the phone, you know, making those cold calls or whatever. But mm. I, I I fundamentally believe that if as a founder of a business of, of any size, like even if you're in a $5 million business, a $10 million, $20 million business, like if you don't have an appreciation of selling, like that is going to be a significant, you know, like detriment to your ability to grow your business, because that's what businesses do is they sell stuff
0: yeah absolutely and you know even if you're not at the coal face on the doing cold calls or whatever like you've gone up through the ranks it might be recruitment you might need to sell the dream to a, a new talented prospect you might be looking for funds from a investor and you need to sell why they should put their money to you there's there's always ways that you're going to need to use those skills so yeah totally agree with you there so you've done this course, you've gone and helped out over the weekend begrudgingly. Um, what was the path from there to creating Breathe? Maybe you want to do an elevator pitch for Breathe as well for anyone that hasn't heard of the business before.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so we train people to be Pilates instructors. We certify Pilates instructors. We do it 100% online. We uh, predominantly at the moment, we Uh, work within the Australian market. And I would say we are currently Australia's, you know, largest, Pilates instructor trainer by any measure, number of students trained, revenue, number of courses offered, graduates, whatever, by an order of magnitude. Um, We're just, uh, you know, we've got a smattering of students around the world, Abu Dhabi, the US, UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Asia, wherever it might be. Um, And we're just on the verge of expanding into the US. And so we we provide, you know, evidence-based uh, group mat work and reformer training, um, and then we do a diploma, which is a clinical diploma, which fo- focuses on injury rehabilitation, uh, super in-depth anatomy and biomechanics. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: And back to that story of bridging from that first weekend where you saw how cool it was to be involved with that Pilates education. What led to you starting up?
1: Uh, Well, the next couple of years after that, I basically just spent fanatically educating myself as a Pilates instructor. So I did a bunch more courses in Australia. I went to Canada and did a bunch more training at the kind of Mecca of that particular style of Pilates in Toronto. Um, And then uh, 2006, my wife and I decided to have a baby. We decided to move back to Melbourne because that's where most of our family was. It's good to be around family. When you have a baby um and so we thought oh well we'll open our own place you know and so i'd been you know leading in some form whether it was a sales manager or the um you know club manager or whatever at elixir for a few years at that point and so i felt like yeah i kind of get how this business works I'd, I'd worked on the operations side i worked on the sales side um, and i'd opened a couple of clubs uh you know i'd led the sales efforts in opening a couple of clubs. And so I thought, oh, you know, how hard could it be? You know, we just do what we did up there and we'll do it in Melbourne. So we decided to go big and um, there was a few friends of ours involved. So there were five of us, I think, who all put in $60,000 each. And my $60,000 was like two maxed out credit cards plus a $40,000 unsecured loan. Um, and I think there was probably like, a, I think that was actually from my mum, the $40,000. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to, have to be comfortable with going cap in hand. (laughs) That's like, (laughs) that's the price of admission. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so we opened our own place in Melbourne CBD called Breathe Wellbeing. It was a yoga and Pilates studio we decided to go big and this was in 2006 where there was no such thing as group reformer. This was pre KX, KX started in 2010. So they like really the group reformer thing just wasn't a thing in Australia at that point. Um, and so uh, we opened this studio, I had 20 reformers in the reformer studio. We had 30 people in the yoga studio. We had a clinical studio. We could fit like 10 people in there at the same time. So this is a huge studio in Melbourne CBD. The rent was $180,000 a year. 450 square meters on little Collins street with vaulted ceilings and polished floorboards and beautiful light all, you know so it was it was right at the start of pilates turning and yoga turning from like you go in and there's someone in pouchy leggings and patchouli like ignoring you because you're not one of the in crowd to like what we have now which is like slick customer service beautiful surroundings all of that you know automation and online beautiful photography and all of that so but we were right at the start of that like there that wasn't a thing when we started um so yeah that was 2006 2007 up to 2016 I ran that business um we opened a second studio just around the corner in Goldie Place um down from Hardware Lane um by the end by 20 end of 2015 we were doing about two and a half million dollars in revenue we had 42 staff uh we're running like 1500 client attendances a week 120 classes across the two studios Uh, and I just got to a point where I was burnt out I'd been you know managing the thing and uh, you know was not enjoying working within a partnership like I've got a lot of respect for the people I was in the partnership with and I'm still friends with not all of them but some of them Um, and so it wasn't you know I don't want to suggest that you know they were bad and I was good but it was it was a mismatch it was irreconcilable creative differences basically they wanted to Save and I wanted to earn more, um, was the basic thing, um, and so I was I was away with my wife and daughter, in Venus Bay over Christmas, and I was feeling super burnt out, and I was reading all these books on burnout because I'm just a freaking fanatical self educator, and so I was like, I'm feeling burnt out. Oh, I wonder what that's all about. So I just started reading books on burnout, and I learned that oh, burnout's not just overwork. It's combination of overwork plus feeling underappreciated, feeling like you have low autonomy and inability to, to influence a situation and feeling like you're not making a difference. Right. And when you all of those things, you know, meet, that's when you've got a that's when you've got burnout. And so just taking a break doesn't solve it because you feel great. You're on a break. Oh, this, life's good. And you go back day one back in the office, you're like, oh no, this is shit again. Exactly. So I realized I needed to change the whole situation. A holiday wasn't, it was just going to not do nothing, not do anything. So I was sitting there with my wife and I vividly remember this moment. It was like, this was a pivotal moment for me where I said like, you know, I've got to get out. And she was like, what would you, you know, if you got out, what would you do? And I was like, oh, well, I'd start a training business. You know, I don't want to run studios anymore. And she's like, well, we've already got a training business. I was like, oh yeah. Because we had this little baby training business within the studio, you know, like a subsidiary of the studio, which was just a hobby. It was nothing, you know, it was like, it was, it was pretend business, you know, we just trained instructors just because when you're a studio owner, one of your biggest problems is where do I get instructors from? And so we just had created this little training program just to create our own instructors. That was it. You know, it was making, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say a number and maybe people listening to this are going to go, oh, that sounds like a lot but it's not like we were making $250,000 a year in revenue in that business. Um, but this is in a two and a half million dollar business, right? So I was, mm. it was 10% of the revenue, but it was, it was nothing little business. And, and so, yeah, so my wife was like, Oh, we've already got a training business. And I was like, Oh yeah. So I just went back to my partners. and I said, I want to, I want you guys to buy me out from the studio and I want to buy out the training business. And basically we agreed to that. And, um, in 2016 in April on April the 1st I took over the training business and holy shit the best decision ever like o m f g like best decision ever
0: This episode of Sticky Beak is brought to you by Digital Deluxe If you're sick of digital agencies that overpromise and underdeliver you need to speak to Digital Deluxe we can't guarantee miracles, but we can guarantee great service and a logical, ROI-focused approach. Visit www.digitaldeluxe.com.au forward slash StickyBeak to access our special offer for StickyBeak listeners. On the burnout, how did that manifest for you? Like, what made you realize that you were, you had burnout? Um.
1: Well, I'm all... I'm. Yeah, ever since I can remember, I've just been extremely energetic, like not like an ADHD bouncing off the walls energetic, but like I can, I can work 18 hours a day for months. You know, I can work seven days a week for months. Um, and it doesn't get me down. Like, I love it. I love getting my teeth into a challenge. it, It excites me to chip away at a problem and, you know, cut it down to size. Like, but I was just feeling like demotivated I was feeling like oh do I have to go into work today and it's like that to me was like a massive Mm. warning bell and I just I just felt like I just want to spend the day in bed
0: Mm. you know it's
1: like I never feel like that
0: Yeah. yeah and was there were there any physical symptoms
1: not that I recall it was more just a existential malaise
0: yeah, gotcha, gotcha. The reason I dig into it is um, I think it's a more common problem than people realize, and I think it's good to share those kind of experiences so people can sort of recognize when it might be popping up and that there might be things that they need to address to avoid it, because I think it's something you can easily get stuck in and you might be experienced burnout for a number of years and just think that that's how it is, but it doesn't actually need to be like that. And yeah and i think the autonomy thing you mentioned um i actually heard a reddit thing this morning about the three pillars of human psyche that are necessary for happiness and fulfillment and one of them is autonomy one of them was competency and the other was relatedness and i think that autonomy thing is really interesting because people don't think about the level of autonomy that they might have in their role or even business and sometimes business owners and entrepreneurs can really they start off with the attraction to the autonomy but as the business progresses that autonomy gets whittled away because they get stuck doing things that maybe they don't want to do but they have to keep doing them to keep the revenue coming in it kind of sounds like that happened to you and then you realize that there was a certain aspect of the business that you were more interested in something else i'm interested in with how that transitioned. So you mentioned you got the business partners to buy you out and you were going to buy out the training part of the business. How did you create the valuations there? You mentioned the training part was doing about 10% of the rev at that stage. So how did you structure that? Um,
1: It was kind of a tricky one because um, we had quite good revenue in that business at that point, like two and a half million in the, in the mother business, Mm. but, but a lot of debt, Like the first, you know, I said we started big and we started when no one knew about Group Reformer and we like we had to educate people on this is a reformer machine, you know, and this is what you do on it. Um, And so the first and we knew nothing about business. I mean, I thought I knew everything. Like when I came down here from Sydney, I'd been leading sales teams. When we opened up, I thought, oh, we're going to just take this city by storm. We're going to like do a pre-sales like we do in fitness. You know, Pilates, don't know what's hit it in Melbourne. So I hired a team of six full-time gun salespeople. I mean, I hired people, everyone on the sales team had either led sales teams across multiple venues. They'd been like, um, one guy was, his previous job was head of media sales on Virgin Atlantic. You know, like I got some heavy, heavy hitters on the sales team. Um, And I was like, we are going to smash it out of the park. We had like this six, I'd done pre-sales on two health clubs before, you know, I thought, oh, so got this. And we just did not make sales. Like we could not get people to pull out their credit cards and we put the price down and we like, we just, we were generating, we were literally generating garbage bags full of leads. Like we were, we had leads just, just all over the place. It was just little paper slips of leads. This was before digital was a thing. 2006, it was like, the iPhone had only just been released. Hmm. Um, So we had, we had literally bits of leads everywhere. Like we just couldn't call the people. There were so many leads, right. But we just could not close any of them. And one by one, I just had to let all of those salespeople go. (laughs) Not because they weren't good salespeople, just we didn't have the offer right. Um, Yeah. 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 and during that time we were burning through we were hemorrhaging through cash. Like it was just, we were just bleeding out and we all, we, I said we put in $60,000, but then we had to put in more money and, you know, I had already gone cap in hand to my mom, already maxed out my credit. It was like, <laughs> like, Oh, who else do I know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, so by the time we got to like, finally figure out, oh, this is how you sell Pilates, right? Um, And I have to give my business partner, Roger Jones, credit because he's the one who figured that out. Um, Shout out to Roger. Um, But by the time we figured that out, we were so deep in debt. It was like even a two and a half million dollar business, you know, 10 years later, we were still (laughs) digging our way out of that. (laughs) And we're pretty close to dug out of it, but there was still a couple of hundred thousand In debt, right? And so I'm selling out of this business that has significant liability. And so, and then I'm buying this other little business that has zero liability. So it was really just, uh, you know, it was, you know, you can value a business on X percentage of EBITDA or whatever, you know, earnings before interest and tax multiplied by whatever factor. And that factor is going to be based on how scalable is the business? How much are your processes down? How automated is it? You know, all of that stuff um but really it comes down to what's someone willing to pay for it and what someone's willing to take for it you know so um and so it just became a case of me saying hey look i'm out of this business and you know you can buy me out or i'm just going to walk out you know those are your options <laughs> yeah yeah
0: gotcha gotcha and then putting a number on the training business
1: um that one was pretty easy because that that business was actually profitable and it was really small and it just you know it had one employee or something like that and it was like okay this is a fair valuation of that business, um, and so yeah that was that was pretty easy because that bit yeah that was that was just a real straightforward little simple business.
0: Gotcha, gotcha, and that became breathe. How did you start acquiring students for breathe?
1: Um, so you know, like I said, the reason you know I think the big reason I need to get out of that studio business was that a fundamental philosophical difference with my partners was I'm very, very growth oriented. I'm just all about, well, let's just get more sales. That'll fix it. You know, like whatever, whatever it is, you know, Um, like why are we frigging around trying to save $5 on the toilet paper when we could just go and double our revenue somehow, you know, like let's figure out how to do that. Let's put our prices up. Let's whatever. Um, and, but, and so I was, you know, really wanting to, i was reading a lot of you know hbr you know harbour business review reports and a lot of idea data like one of the things i read was an idea um an ibis world survey that said that the number one predictor of longevity and retention in health clubs is the length of the initial membership contract like i mean you think about it, like dirt people who sign a 12-month contract stay a lot longer than people who sign a one-month contract yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not rocket surgery when you think about it but we're doing these one month contracts. And there was extreme resistance from my partners to offer a 12 month contract, even, even alongside the one month contract. And so this was just like a table banging kind of argument that we had so many times. And yeah, so that's why kind of I felt really stifled and like, I wanted to try all these things that I was sure, you know, some of them are going to have a big diff make a big difference. And so as soon as we split out and I was like, Oh, there's no one, no one to tell me what to do. I can just do whatever I want. So I went and um, hired this marketing agency, um, and uh, holy shit, that was that was that was that was the inflection point. Like, if you look at the graph of our revenue and our profit, it basically goes flat, and then like the month we hired this agency, it angles for the heavens, you know, the stratosphere. And so that first year, um, you know, we I didn't have a lot of money because I, you know was paying off this business that I just bought and we didn't have a lot of revenue. You know, I mean, 250,000 t- sounds like a lot, but by the time you've got like one employee and you pay yourself, it's like, Oh, the money's gone. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so um, you know, so uh, they, they said, oh, they did a little uh, sort of uh, analysis for us and said, okay, well, you know, where, where are the low hanging fruit? How, how can we, how can we get the best return on, investment you know to start up and we realized okay we've got capacity in this course and we're not you know we're getting leads to the website but they're not converting so they're like oh we'll build your landing page to convert or like whatever that is you know um and so they're like oh that'll be a thousand bucks or three thousand bucks or whatever it was i can't remember it was some small number of thousands which seemed like a lot at the time to me like i remember like a thousand dollars wow that's you know um but th- we spent that and they built the landing page and like man all of a sudden we didn't have enough time in the day to take all the calls of people wanting to enroll in the course. I was like, holy shit, this works. You know, this, this really works. And so I was like, okay, I went back to them. I was like, okay, what else, what else can you do for us next? And then I can't remember what they did next, but that, you know, they built us a funnel or whatever they did. And it was like that. And then that worked. And I was like, all right, what else is there? You know, I want everything. Um, and so, um, yeah, so we've just, you know, uh, we've, that's been a real pivotal relationship with that marketing agency. I've learned a lot and they've just done a huge amount for our revenue, but really, I think, you know, it comes back to that, what we said right at the start about sales being a fundamental skill. And I I put marketing kind of in in that, right? Marketing is just sales writ large um, in my book. Uh, And so I think uh, paying attention to the marketing And going okay we are a marketing focused business and that is why that's where we're putting our attention that's where we're putting our time that's where we're putting our finance until we're so flooded with incoming leads that we're drinking from the fire hose then we start to think about how do we deliver the product
0: yeah gotcha it's a really good story and it's good to hear a positive experience with the marketing agency because there's a lot of negative ones out there um but it definitely can work. If you if you partner with the right agency, It's it, there's definitely a lot of benefits to be had there. And like you said, marketing, look, it's basically a precursor to sales, or if you've got an online business that can be the sales component. So um, yeah, and I think that mindset around just sell, 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 get the growth um, happening, it, it makes a lot of sense and it, it can easily get left behind. I think it's a lot of entrepreneurs who don't have that sales experience or maybe that growth mindset, can get caught procrastinating on polishing things that aren't gonna bring money in. Um, I think it's a great tip to really put your energy and focus on where the growth is coming from, because you know if you're not getting new money coming in the door, then your business is probably gonna start declining pretty quickly. So that's great advice there. In terms of systemizing the business, so obviously first thing you've done is make sure that you've got plenty of new students coming in so that the business is growing. What did you do to make sure that you had systems in place so that it was a good experience? Because obviously it's it's a great thing to have new business coming in, but it can quickly become a problem if you're not servicing that new business correctly. What did you do to make sure that it was a good experience and you had good throughput?
1: Um, Well, you know, when you're small, like, you know, one or two or three or four people on the team, it's pretty easy because everyone kind of knows everything and you're all literally sitting at the same kitchen table and, you know, everyone kind of knows what everyone else does all day and and whatever. So the communication is not an issue and you just say, hey, we're going to do this. And like, then everyone does it. Um, And it was me doing the selling and with this um, one other salesperson who's still with us. Um, and it was me delivering the courses. It was me doing the customer service. (laughs) So It's really easy. You're just like, Oh, I'm just going to look after these people. But then all of a sudden it's like, Oh crap, I can't look after all of these people anymore. And now we have to hire more people to look after the people. And so I think the, the first, you know, thinking back, the first kind of strategy was, I'll just hire someone really smart and they'll figure it out. Um, and that kind of worked for a little bit because when there's three or four or five or six people sitting around a table, if they're all smart people, they kind of do figure it out. But then once you get to a certain size, like once you get to, I don't know, maybe 10 people, it's like, yeah, all of a sudden there are some people who don't know what other people do all day. And you're like, yeah, what does Dan do all day? I don't know. <laughs> he looks busy, but <laughs> I don't know what he does. Yeah. And then and then you're like, oh, how come no one did, called up that student? Or how come no one, you know, cashed that check? Or how come no one changed the website? And they are like, oh, I thought you were going to do it. <laughs> and, and so you start to have these problems that arise from people being siloed or or, you know not having clear process around who's responsible for something Um, and so at that point you have to start making processes but you're already behind because the process by the time you realize you've got to start making processes you're already seeing the consequences of having broken processes and so like you're always playing catch-up and it's like you're putting out fires and then trying to fireproof the the thing at the same time. Um, So uh, the next kind of real inflection point for us was when we we're at about 12 or 14 employees, we, we, you know, I did, I did a lot of, re, you know, I've always been, a you know, I read every day I've read so many business books and marketing books and leadership books and sales books and all of that stuff. Um, and you know, I get so much from all of that, but, but I, I really felt like I needed a mentor somebody who could coach me on my specific, you know, problems, blind spots, whatever. And, um, I looked in Australia. I really struggled to find anyone. I think it's because in Australia and maybe it was just my network wasn't big enough or whatever, but they're just, we were doing like, I know 1 million, one and a half million, something in revenue at that point. And every business kind of course or convention or whatever I went to, it was basically full of solopreneurs making a hundred thousand a year and nothing against solopreneurs. Like I've been one, but but the questions they were asking, the problems they had were not the same questions and problems that I had. They were asking, like, how do I build a website? You know, how do, where do I get my business cards printed? And we were like, how do I fire my, you know, salesperson who's not performing <laughs> or whatever? You know, just different questions, different problems. Um, and so we ended up finding this place in Phoenix, a um, lead Entrepreneurs, which was an offshoot of Infusionsoft, which was the, the CRM that we we're using, which we still use. It's now called Keep Max. Um, and so their their mission at A-Lead um, Entrepreneurs is basically they help seven-figure businesses scale to eight figures. And we we're like, huh, we just hit seven figures. This is for us. And so we've been going across there super regularly. We they used to fly three of us, you know, me and two team members across every three months and we'd attend an in-person training there. Um, since COVID, we've been going virtually, but now it's even better. The whole team goes. So like we have our nine people on our leadership team all go this training once every three months um and they basically they have a they have a a system and they teach you all of the aspects of business they do sales they do marketing they do customer support they do finances they do operations they do you know just and there are lots of systems and i think most of the systems probably work right but i think the problem that a lot of people have is they don't pick a system and then implement it they they keep getting more and more, reading more and more books, going to more and more workshops, doing, watching more and more YouTube clips. And then they they don't implement or they implement in a piecemeal and haphazard fashion. And it's like, I think what, what's been, you know, one of the key ingredients of our success is we've actually just picked something and just done it. Like we implement, you know, we follow through on that system. And so, yeah, that's, 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 you know, I mean, we have our problems. We struggle, we, you know, like we, everything's not perfect, but we keep growing and we're growing rapidly. We, we're now doing 5 million. We're well on track for, I'd say, you know, conservatively 6 million this year, we'll probably hit 10 million. Um, and we're at just about 30 team members full-time now. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So I think, um, you know, something I learned from the elite entrepreneurs is they've got this model, uh, Clayton mask, who's the CEO of infusion soft, um, they're about i don't don't know exactly but they're like some number of hundreds of millions of dollars they've gone public recently um and so he says that basically there are these stages in small business and every time you hit a uh, a zero or a three you hit a new stage so when you go from like zero to a hundred thousand when you go from a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand three hundred thousand to a million a million to three million three million to ten million right every time you hit a, a zero or a three you basically you outgrow your systems and you you've reach a new stage where you have to focus on different things. So when you're like 100,000 to 300,000, it's all about, okay, when you're at 100,000, you're just a tradesperson, you're just a job, right? To get to 300,000, you've got to sort out, someone's got to be responsible for sales, right? How do you get that extra? You've got to get someone on the phones, right? Someone whose job it is to get on the phones. When you get to 300,000, you're like, okay, we know how to sell, but we, we don't have a marketing process. And so basically, we're only selling to people, random people, referrals, people who meet in the street. To get to from 300 to a million, you've got to get this marketing thing happening, right? You've got to have a repeatable process that you can just generate lead into the business. You put a dollar in the top of the hopper and you get a lead out the bottom. And then to get from a million to 3 million, all of a sudden you've got to systematize and process, create processes because it's like, okay, we've got leads, we've got customers we're not servicing them because our systems don't work and people are pissed off and wanting refunds and whatever and then from 3 million to 10 million it's about developing leaders because now you're hiring people who are hiring people and there are people being hired in the business who you've never met and you know there are people leading people and people making decisions about spending and and whatever that you're not involved in you know and so it's about empowering people and creating a, you know building a culture and nurturing up these people and so at each stage there's kind of a different set of of challenges and none of the challenges never go away. Like, you know, at we're at 5 million right now, we still have to sell and we still have to market and we still have to have process, but those aren't our key bottlenecks right now. You know, for us, our key bottleneck now is, is, is leadership and culture.
0: Yeah. yeah, Which is a good segue into the next question, which is how do you identify the right talent for the business and attract it?
1: Um, I think when you start out, it's real easy because you just tap your circle of friends on the shoulder, right? The the, 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 the talent are your customers, your family members, your friends, <laughs> um, whatever. Um, but pretty soon, if you grow, um, if you're lucky enough to grow, well, you run out of friends and customers who <laughs> are the right fit. Um, and, and, and so you have to, you have to develop the skill of, of attracting, you know, people you don't know into the business, the right people and not the wrong people. And so I, I think we're doing pretty well at that. Um, uh, and so I think the first, the first thing is you got to get super clear on what your values are as a business and what your mission is as a business. And so, uh, you know, for us, um, we've got seven values, you know, for example, we've prioritized self-care as a value. Um, we use science and data. Um, is another value, and so we, you know, there are a bunch more. But so basically, we lead with those. We say, hey, in our job ad, we say, here's what we believe. Do you believe these things too, right? And if if you believe them, keep reading. If not, stop reading. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we talk about like, okay, what does it mean to value self care? What are the behaviors we'll observe that tell us that you value it as well, right? And and how will that be operationalized in your role? Like you'll be actually, that's one of your KPIs right? That will be measured. And so that's one thing. The next thing is, I think, getting clear on your mission and what each person's job is, to, what each person's contrib- contribution towards that is. So our mission, our present mission, which is a, a two to three-year, you know, company-wide stretch goal, is to create and dominate a online market for Pilates education in North America uh, by the end of 2022. Um, And, you know, there are specific financial and, you know, customer metrics attached, you know, how many students will train, how many dollars will make, whatever. And that just tells us the scoreboard. Like, are we, are we winning or or not? Right. Um, And so we, so each, each person in the company has what's called a big three, which is their, you know, I mean, everyone's got a job description. It's like, okay, you've got these 99 things you've got to do. Right. But, there are three things that, if you just just do these three things, if everything else goes to hell in a handbasket, you still win. And those three things have got to be directly tied to how do we achieve our mission, right? So if our mission, if our mission is to sign up x number of students or make x number of revenue or have a certain, we'll say our, one of our metrics is we're going to have a ninety percent retention rate, right? So at, you know ninety percent of our of the people enrol are going to graduate. And so if you're a student success team member, we'll your metrics are directly tied to that, right? Um, uh, And we know that the things that predict uh, student retention are early engagement. So people who engage within the first four weeks of enrolling, as in like they talk to us on Slack, they answer their emails, they sign up for the welcome webinar, they, you know, whatever. And so if you're a student success team member, well, your metrics are about getting onto people within the first four weeks, right? And you get measured on that every week. Um, And so I think having a a culture, creating a culture where everyone knows where the goalposts are and where that performance is measured and reported publicly. Everyone knows how everyone else is doing. And it's not, it's not a name and shame. It's like, here's, here's what the score is this week. Right. And, and a culture where it's like, that's just the norm. Everyone knows how everyone's doing in the company and, and including me, like, so everyone knows whether we made a profit or a loss this month. And, what our bank balance is and, and all of that stuff, right? Whether we paid our tax on time and all that, like it's all transparent. And so we have a transparently performance oriented culture. And we say in the job ad, this is what you'll be measured on, right? And this is how it will be measured. And this is how it will be reported. Everyone's going to know, right? And and there are some people that are going to look at that and go, oh, that's awesome. I want to work there. And there are other people who are going to be like, oh no, I, you know, I don't want to work there. Um, and then we just, I think we put, a, we put a job ad together that basically says, here's why the role that we're advertising for is crucial for the mission, right? If you're the janitor, if you're the person cleaning the toilets, if you're the cook, this is, you know, you feed people, right? You lift morale, you <laughs> nourish people, give, give us the sustenance to carry on, right? It's, it's like there's no job in the company that is not noble, You know, you have to explain, you know, how you, how this job is like so crucial and yeah. And then we, we get people to submit a video. So we say to, to apply submit a five minute video of yourself on YouTube, um, answering these three questions about two questions about values and one question about job performance and also a cover letter and a resume. And it's astounding the number of people who can't follow a simple instruction like that. And so that's great. That eliminates 85% of people. Off the bat, and then um, the video. I think you get a pretty good sense of the ones that are definitely not a good fit, Um, and then that gives you a short list. And then we do a value screen where we ring them up and say, "Okay, here's our value. Give us an example of what does this mean to you. Give us an example of how you how that plays out for you in life." Uh, And if they pass through all of that, then they get an interview. And if they pass through the interview, sorry, they don't get an interview. They get a behavioural test. So if they're a customer service role they get to do a customer service task. If it's a training role, they get to do a training task. If it's a sales role, they get to do a sales call. Right. And then we listen in, we watch, we whatever. And if their work's pretty awesome, then we're like, okay, great. You get an interview. So uh, it's still pretty laborious, but it means that we don't talk to many people. And the ones we do talk to, like we, you know, our goal is to have like three or four people at the end. We're like, we want to hire all of them, but we can only give one a job. You know, that's, that's a perfect scenario
0: yeah gotcha um i'll give you a quick plug to a platform called test gorilla i don't know if you've used that before but we recently started using it for recruitment and it's, it's really good uh for putting together it's got preset tests for like problem solving that sort of thing and they're actually good tests that give Good feedback on how good the person is at it Um, that includes everything from like Gmail usage to communication to everything and they you can do video um, to automatically set up video questions in there um, put whatever custom questions you want in there and it's super easy, so it just puts all those things in one place, you can give ratings to the. the applicants in the platform and it's much more streamlined than the way we were doing it before with manual tests and all that sort of thing, trying to manage it all separately. So quick plug for those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend it. Um, basically the transparency thing, not many businesses share, you know, bank balances, profits, all that kind of thing. Um, I would say the vast majority don't, how did you arrive at doing that? And what have you used to communicate that to the team?
1: Uh, so we have, we have a weekly leadership meeting where every leader goes through and traffic lights, their key results. Everyone's got a three big three and the finance team, their big three is like, well, what's our bank balance? How much profit did we make, et cetera? Um, did we pay all our bills? Um, and so every week our finance manager reports, Hey, here's how much came in. Here's how much went out. We're up to date with our bills. This is the bank balance. Um, and so it's super straightforward
0: yeah and you go to the level of sharing like salaries and that sort of thing or is it just no we don't share salaries yeah that's
1: because that's not my information to share yeah Um, that's that's up to each individual person so yeah we don't we don't share that information Uh, but we do share transparently what our total payroll is um and so we have a i have a meeting with um our cfo once a week our um and, and we go through cash flow projections, revenue, PL, balance sheet, all of that. Uh, and whoever on our leadership team wants to is welcome to attend. And there's usually like four or five of us on the call. And he just talks like, okay, here's how much we spent. Here's how much we thought we were going to spend. Here's what next month's looking like, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, and we just talk it through. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I, I arrived at that after reading a bunch of books and, you know, some, some companies, like you say, don't disclose that. And some, some do. And I think, you know, we, we went through a tough time a couple of years back where we, we went through a sort of a regressive phase where we, their sales went down and we were, we were, we had overcapitalized on staff and our expenses were too high. And I came to a tough place where I had to say to everyone, Hey, look, we've got a choice here. Everyone can take a 20% pay cut or I can let three people go. Those are our options. <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, and everybody volunteered to take 20% pay cut uh, and we got through it and we traded out of it and everyone's pay was put back up. Um, And so that, that was awesome. And what I learned from that was that there's a lot less fear for people when they actually just know where they stand. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if, if, if they know the bank balance is going up or down, or there's this many hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank or whatever, or we made a profit this month or whatever, like, they're cool and they can take the truth yeah you know um yeah
0: yeah gotcha gotcha um did any of it come from the great game of business the book
1: uh i don't recall that book yeah Yeah, i might have read it but i doubt it
0: they talk very specifically about this topic in that book and give tips for it but all good (laughs) My next question for you before we wrap up, Raphael, is what would your number one tip be for anyone who's thinking about starting or is in the early stages of starting a business?
1: Uh, I would say the absolute biggest thing is start with the customer's problem in mind. Like, the biggest mistake I see people make over and over and over and over again. And I've made it so many times myself is you start with like, Oh, we've got this cool shit we can sell. And like, okay, how do we market it? And, but that's the absolute ass backwards way to do it. What you have to do if you want to succeed is you start by going, who are we going to serve? What's their hair on fire problem? Why, why don't they think they can solve that problem? What have they tried to solve it You know, and, 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 and what would a perfect solution look like for them? And then, then you have to figure out how to solve it for them profitably. And that's, that's called having a freaking awesome business. (laughs) Most people just go, Oh, I've got this cool widget I can make. How do we sell it? You know, or I've got this cool service or this cool app or this cool, whatever. How do I sell it? No, that's wrong. (laughs) Probably people don't want to buy it. You know, you have to solve business consists of solving a problem for people. You create business creates value in the world by solving a problem for somebody and if you do if you do it well you can capture a bit of that value on the way through in the form of profits right but if you don't solve a problem for somebody you, you don't there's no lift off like <laughs> yeah uh, yeah you have to start from the customer and and how do you know what the customer is and what their problem you have to talk to fucking customers like get out and talk to customers like it's hard you know it's awkward you have to talk to people and go hey what's your problem? <laughs> um, yeah. what, what else have you tried to solve this problem? It feels awkward and weird, but you have to do it. You have to troll through forums. Um, not troll troll T R A W L through forums and look at, okay, what are people bellyaching about? You know, what solutions have they tried that don't work? What gives them the shits about your competitors solutions? You have to look at Amazon and go, okay, look at the books about whatever it is that you sell, you know, what do the five star reviews say for those books? Oh, this book was awesome because what? I learned A, B, and C. Well, what? Well, that's what you got to teach them A, B, and C. Or this. Look at the one star review. This book was shit. It didn't even blah blah blah. Well, what didn't it even? That's what you've got to give your customers, right? So you, you can really learn about this stuff from look at Facebook posts about this that that get a lot of comments, right? Read the comments. Hmm. You know, and this is how you learn about your customers and find out what are their problem. What's their problem? Are they trying to solve? What are the obstacles in their way from their point of view? And what does a perfect world, you know, look like after they've solved their problem? And then it's like easy. That's, that's your business built, right? You're just like, hey, we solve this problem, right? And give you this solution, even if you've got this obstacle, bam, there's all your marketing, done. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah and like you said it might be a little bit hard and a little bit awkward to have those conversations It's definitely some extra work but I tell you what it's a lot harder and a lot more awkward when you've got to close your business or go bankrupt because you've built something that no one wants so I think that's fantastic advice to finish on there Raphael for anyone that wants to find you or breathe um online where would you send them
1: uh, I would send them to our Pilates Elephants podcast, um, which you can find. It's just Pilates Elephants. on. It's on any podcast uh, platform. Um, and if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm the, the Raphael Bender, but really all you're going to see is videos of me doing weightlifting. So <laughs> if, that, if that doesn't interest you, <laughs> don't bother.
0: <laughs> all right. Love it. Thanks again for your time today, Raphael. It's been awesome to chat.
1: Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Likewise, it's been a pleasure.
0: Cheers, mate. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Sticky Beak. If you've got any feedback or suggestions for guests or topics you'd like us to cover, just send it through to info at stickybeak.com.au.